Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, Veritas. Um, you can say it back. Say, hey, good morning. Nice. I, oh, I feel so much more welcomed. Um, guys, I am I'm really glad to be with you guys and to be able to open God's word. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. And, um, you know, as, as we've told you, we're going to be going through the entire book of Genesis in just one semester. And you're like, well, at this pace, <laughs> good luck with that, right? Um, but I feel like, guys, these first two chapters... I feel like we, we take too much for granted in these first two chapters. The drama really, you know, begins to unfold in chapter three. And so we kind of maybe gloss over too quickly what's going on in the first two chapters. But these are foundational. Like, this is the way things ought to be. This is, when we talk about being restored and redeemed, it's to be restored back to this, right? And so it's just, I think, important that we, that we do spend the time that we are um, in Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to complete that part of the journey today. I do want to say just a quick word. Last week, I just felt like Mark did such a tremendous job, and specifically, I love um, how pro-life Genesis became as he taught that part of the scripture. Like sometimes when we talk about being pro-life, what we mean is we're anti-abortion, right? Well, obviously, if you're, you're pro-life, you're against the, the killing of the innocent, right? But m- far more than that, we're pro-life. We're excited about life. We want life to flourish, and we, we see how much life is part of these first two chapters, and we want to cherish that and protect that. And so then I'm, I'm already thinking about that, and then uh, we've got some friends who have a, a two-year-old in, in the children's hospital with uh, a tumor, a cancerous tumor in her brain, and watching um, all these medical professionals that are giving themselves... To, to restore life, right? To, to help fight for life. And, and then I saw this documentary this week. So this is all kind of uh, called The Surgeon's Cut. And in this, in this documentary, this guy goes in utero and does surgery while the baby is still in utero and does these unbelievable things to spare the life because they're so, so So all that building in my soul this week, I want to say to all of you who are medical professionals or researchers, whatever your role is, thank you. That's, that's a beautiful expression of Genesis 1 and 2 where we love life and, and we're setting out to protect and nurture and, and heal and restore. So anyway, we've got a lot of you guys in our church family and it made me just so happy and, and proud for all of the work that you're doing. All right, we're, we're in Genesis 2 now though and I've got some good news for you. Um, we are actually going on safari today, all right? We're going on safari. I, I wanna show you a picture of what if... The idea of safari is, um, I mean, how many people have actually gone on a safari? Not many, right? So this is what I'm, I'm imagining, okay? Which, by the way, obviously pulled this off the World Wide Web. This is not me. I wish it was. But, guys, one just funny aside. This cat here is a cheetah, and cheetahs are so rare and so shy that the fact that some on that truck look seemingly indifferent to the fact that they're sitting right by a cheetah. They should all be like, wow, this is great. You know, anyway, the cheetah is also indifferent to them. So I guess it's all working out. They're all ignoring each other. But I'm just saying, when you go on safari, here's what happens is you, you get to get in this truck and you're depending on this guide and this guide is going to be, okay, now look at this. No, wait, swing over, look over here. 
As we go through Genesis 2, I want us to have the same kind of movement because there's a lot to cover, and the narrator is actually just going to kind of move us from one cool episode to the next, but he's going to be pointing at some things that are going to be really important. So that's how we're, we're going in safari. The, the first few verses that Mark covered uh, last week, the first few verses of chapter 2 are almost like you're still at the lodge, and the safari guide is just kind of having you look over the whole savanna. Like all of creation from chapter one is now completed. And he's like, okay, take a breath, take it all in, take a day even of rest to just soak in all the grandeur of creation, right? And now what he's going to do, starting uh, in our text today, a few verses into chapter two, is we're actually going to pull over and get down into that savanna for the one really magnificent act of creation. And that's the, the image-bearing creation of mankind. He mentioned it in chapter one. Now he's going to be like, hey, load up. I want us to take a deep dive and look in that. So, so chapter two is actually a real elaboration on that specific thing. So, okay. So we're loading up and we're heading out. Let's, let's look at what he points at first. So starting in verse four of Genesis two, it says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now, we're just going to take a moment to gaze at this, this part of it. This is a closer look at the, the making of Adam, right? This, this is where we start to see a remarkable distinction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, God just spoke things into existence, right? Let there be stars. Ding. There were stars, right? Let there be sea. Like, just spoke those things, kind of passively, but the power of the creator just to speak things into existence. But here, look at the difference in the narrative. Now he's forming us, the word forming, that he, he's fashioning us. The, the Hebrew word is a beautiful word. It, it, it's actually like an artisan, like somebody that's taking the dirt and fashioning it such. So it's not passively just speaking us into existence. He certainly could have done that, but no, he's, he's actually forming us. And then that breathing the breath of life into us. Isn't that beautiful? Like, actually leans down and animates us, brings us to life through his own breath. It's just really showing us kind of the apex of creation that, that mankind is. But it's also important, guys, that you see the stuff that he's using to create us. What is it? What does he make us from? Dust, right? So here's the thing, guys. We got to remember, we are just created things also. We're not God. And sometimes we get that a little confused. So even within this narrative, as much as he's kind of bringing us to the top of the food chain, he's also reminding us here, hey, you're just dust. And actually to dust, you can return and will return if you sin, right? We're still created things. But guys, we've got a glory in the fact that God has made us in such like with such intentionality and such creativity. So there's a psalm that I think is devoted actually right out of Genesis chapter two, Psalm 100. This is what he says. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
So what's our response to that? Man, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Like that psalmist, I think, again, just meditating on Psalm two, or Genesis 2 is saying, man, let's glory in that place that we have, but we are made. We are created. Let's keep that in, in proper order, right? And, and interestingly, he uses this word in, in verse 5 there that, that mankind was made to work the ground. The Hebrew word there is the word to serve, we're to serve this creation. Like God has made this glorious thing. We've just been up at the lodge looking over the whole vista of creation. He's like, man, I'm going to put mankind there to, to serve it, not to exploit it, not to vandalize it, to serve it. And it's going to be an awesome job that we get. Okay, so safari truck begins to, you know, kind of roar and grind into gear. All right, so let's go to verse 8. Got to keep the thing going. Look, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. So we drive into this, like the whole thing is unbelievable. Now we seem to enter this whole special garden and watch him as he takes that man that he had created and places him right there. So the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. It's like he creates a tabernacle, a temple of worship, right? It, like it's all beautiful. It's all creation. And then he forms this garden in the middle of all that and places man right there. He says, man, this is where I'm going to walk with you and talk with you. And look at the, the things are especially extraordinary here. And these, these trees are prominent, right? And the theme of trees, again, going all the way through the whole of, of scripture, really important. But trees are really prominent here because they're not just beautiful and, and glorious to look at, but they nourish us, right? They, 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 they sustain life. And then there's these two particular trees that he introduces to, to us here. And they're important. One is in the center of the garden, we are told. It's the tree of, of life. And being in the center, it's the most prominent. So I, I don't know, was it even a little taller? Was, was its canopy a little bit wider? I don't, I don't know, but somehow a lot of attention is given to that tree of, of life, and it's going to show up all the way through the scripture, and again, all the way into the book of Revelation. We're going to see the, the importance of this tree of life. And then he says, oh, and then there's this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want you to note the way that those things are placed, because in our minds, I think we get this upside down sometimes. And maybe you even had a Sunday school coloring paper or something at some point in your life, and what you had was, oh yeah, there's all these trees, and then there's this really cool tree with the fruit just hanging down, ready for the picking, right? And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it puts a narrative in your mind, like, how could God be so unkind as to, like, bait these guys to that tree? Like, right? Why did he make that one so glorious? And you guys, whatever that Sunday school picture is that you colored, that's wrong. That's not the picture of Genesis 2. The one that's the most inviting, the one that's there and prominent is the tree of life, and it's beckoning you rightly, and it's not restricted at all. The only one that's restricted is not more glorious or more central. In fact, it's just one of the trees over here, and of all the thousands of trees that are at your disposal, there's only one that you're not going to be able to get. We'll see that in a few verses, but just get the picture right, okay? It's not the most attractive, like magnetic force to it kind of a thing at all. Okay, so let's look down at verse 10, because 
this driver gets mad because I talk too much on each point along the way, right? We got more to see, so we got to get back in the truck. So a river goes out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides, becomes the source of four rivers. So the name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. It's like North Africa. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is, is the Euphrates. All right, we barely have time to glance at the rivers, but, but it's pretty central. There's a lot of attention drawn to this river, like almost the river of life kind of a thing. And it's a source not only of life, but also connecting the whole world, like all these different kingdoms all around are going to be able to get to each other through these water courses, water channels. And water becomes, again, a huge theme throughout the scripture, right? Because a big part of us is made of water. Like 60% of our body composition is, is water, I was doing just a, a, a just barely shallow dive in, into this thing. And like some of our organs, like our lungs, you guys, are made up of like 87% water. So every time you just take in a breath, that's dependent on us having water, right? Even more than food, water. And so just these rivers of, of, of life and, and flourishing, which is why, like, again, when you get to the New Testament and John talks to the woman at the well about water just flowing through. Like all this invitation to water that is life is, is, is that theme is, is right here. Beautiful, beautiful. So he's honking his horn, right? Get this thing going. We got something really cool to look at. And it's true. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in that garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So now he's adding work, and now another thing. And I'm placing you here to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, really quick reminder to Adam, uh, you're not the boss. Like, I'm giving you a really prominent place. This, this, big deal. You're a big deal here, right? But you're not ultimately the boss. I've got, I've got rules here, and, and you've got only one rule. But God placed him there not only to keep watch or, or just to work, but also to keep watch. This, this is a beautiful word also. I, the, the imagery of Psalm 121 comes to mind because in just that short little Psalm, Psalm 121, you can read it later on your own. But it's, it's the Lord that watches over his people. It has this idea of hovering over. So like if you've ever been around a sick child or something, and you're just nervous for them, and they're fevered up or something, so you're just kind of hovering over, watching them breathe, watching everything. That's the idea that the Lord watches over his people. And that's what he's saying to Adam here. Watch over the garden. Why? Well, there's an enemy lurking. We're going to turn a page and, and discover that. He should have been watchful. He should have been keeping care, like work the ground, but also watch over. And, and basically what, what God's saying is, hey, you watch over the garden, and then I'll watch over you. Like if, if you listen to me, follow my word, all, all will be well. You watch over the garden, I'll watch over you, and, and let's, let's uh, be in this together kind of a thing in stewarding this incredible creation in Eden specifically. Okay, let's see what happens, though, because this is where the... the I almost wonder now if the driver almost like turns off the engine and says, okay, now really listen in to this part. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper 
corresponding to him. Now, that's an interesting word. We're going to come back to that, corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Okay, once again, what a cool thing God is giving to Adam. So this, this mimics or mirrors a little bit what happened in, in chapter one. Like God said, you know what? I'm going to call that light. I'm going to call that day. I'm going to call that sun, moon, whatever, right? Now he's letting Adam do that. Like take, taking ownership. When you get to name something, you can take ownership and responsibility over, right? You guys, we, we do this a lot, right? Children, pets, whatever. I, st- I still remember though, you guys, I'm one of five kids. I'm the punk. I'm the baby of the family. And um, we got this beagle when I was just a little kid. And I remember my parents, for whatever reason, let me be the one to name this beagle. And the first name that came out of my mouth was Buffy. <laughs> just, even now, I'm embarrassed, like, Buffy the beagle. And that was, became its name. You know, like, why didn't at that point my parents assert their authority and say Actually, we're going to let your brother name it. Like, so the rest of it, so he, but that's it. That dog had to be called Buffy because that's what came out of my mouth and I named it, right? So he's, what I'm saying is Adam was given the privilege of just naming everything. It's, it's an incredible honor and privilege that, that he's given. But along with that, he's, he's saying something that's not making sense to him, right? Because he's giving all these names to all these birds, all these wild animals. But for the man, no helper was found, here it is again, corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at the place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And both the man... And his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Guys, clearly this is where the whole narrator wants the most attention to be. Fully a third of this whole story is devoted to this moment right here. So why? Why does the safari driver pull over, shut the engine off, and just say, listen carefully, really pay attention to what's going on? What's so fascinating about the creation of mankind in maleness and femaleness do we learn by, by looking here? The first thing, you guys, I think that should pop out to us is that, you guys, God is the ultimate gift giver. God is the ultimate gift giver. So apart from this precise gift that we're going to talk about here, what I'm saying is look at how elaborate his plan is to bring this whole gift to the man, Right? So I remember like when my kids were little, especially sometimes for their birthdays or Christmas, I'd, I'd make them go on a scavenger hunt. I'd put these, you know, clues all over the place, outside and everywhere, right? And because every step along the way just kind of heightened their anticipation for what was coming, right? So that's what's going on here, right? J- just a few weeks ago, uh, my grandson had a birthday, and uh, he really loves making rivers. And by that, he means getting his dad's 
garden hose and like chiseling through the backyard and making rivers, which my son really likes his yard. So this is not a happy time for him, but, but it's happy for me. I think that's really cool and really fun. So for his birthday, I took him out to the van. I opened the back and I had gone to Menards and gotten like tiling, you know, tubing and some gutter stuff. And I'm like, Grafton, it's your birthday. It's river time, you know? And so we got, he was like, yeah. I mean, he, you could not have bought him a pony and gotten a better reaction out of him than gutter, you know, from Menards. So now just think about that. What if I had gone to Menards and got that same stuff for my wife for her birthday? (laughs) Like what kind of a response do you think I would get from my wife? You know, like, no, no, no. But for grant, like that's what he wanted. It was like the fulfillment of his dreams. And what I'm saying is God is giving Adam the fulfillment of his dreams, right? You can see that in here. God is apart from marriage, apart from just know We're to learn things from these couple chapters about just God himself. And God is a good gift giver. He's a good, good father. Loves to give us good things. But specifically on this, I think another thing that we're to learn is, guys, no man is an island. We are all incomplete to some degree. And and this isn't a result of sin. This isn't a result. This is pre-Genesis 3 with sin. I'm saying we are intentionally created with inadequacy. This idea of someone corresponding to us is this idea that they bring something to the table that I don't have, and it's only by coming together that we can bring the fullness of image bearing. So my inadequacy is met by theirs and vice versa, that kind of thing. So here this is all about marriage, but you guys, this principle also is going to go way beyond marriage. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, this same principle is going to be used about the church. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about how, hey, all of us were given gifts, but not all of them. And it's only as we come together that we can fully express all the glory that God would have through his people. But in and of ourselves, we're intentionally inadequate. We need each other. So that's going to be true of friendship, right? Through the book of Proverbs, you see those kind of things. So this idea that we're inadequate. Now, I do want to say to the, to the women here, okay, don't get too thrown off by that word helper. Like, I wonder if some of you are like, what? I'm not going to just be a helper. Whatever. I don't know. That, that word can kind of be, I don't know, uh, like a patronizing word or something. Here, again, we get it all wrong. This word, the Hebrew word for helper here is beautiful. It's not subservient. Like, there are Hebrew words that could communicate subservience. They didn't pick that one for this. This word for helper is partner, to come alongside. In fact, I just mentioned a little bit ago, Psalm 121. Psalm 121 starts this way. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Oh, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That word for helper there is used of God. Someone to come alongside us, someone to come walk with us, right? To, to come to our aid. That's the word that's, that's used here. So in other words, this is saying Adam needed someone to come together to tend the garden, to watch over the garden, to, to take care of things, right? And, and, and so a woman who's going to come alongside him, and they're especially going to come together when it comes to the flourishing of raising children and so forth. That's not going to be relegated, oh, that's woman's work or that's man's work. No, no, we're going to come together and that's how we're going to bring the image of God and and flourish. Now, having said that, that doesn't detract for a moment from the male's responsibility, from Adam's responsibility 
to lead. So right in the same text, when does the command about that tree come to Adam? Before Eve is even on the scene, right? That just tells you something about God's ultimate responsibility coming onto the, the male for men. And that is going to be true through the whole Bible and into the church, into our marriages today, right? But God's design is for completeness, for partnership. Yes, for men to take responsibility and ownership and leadership, but there's going to be a coming together. Now, let me say this. Why the whole rib thing? <laughs> Isn't that kind of weird? Like, why, why the, the whole thing with the rib? Well, I don't think it's just because, um, you know, God was like an anesthesiologist and wanted to put it because it was going to be painful or something like that. No, I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it's more like this. This is such a glorious gift that, Adam, you're not going to make this happen on your own. You're not going to snap your fingers and make this happen. In fact, you're going to be passive. I'm going to let you sleep. I'm going to be the one to bring you this good gift. Like, we got to depend on God. we got to let God bring the good gift. Don't, don't, you know, when we take matters into our own hands and try to manipulate things and force things, we get into a lot of trouble, right? He puts Adam to sleep, right? And then let God be God. Wait for him to provide. One last thing in the rib. There's a great quote by this guy, Matthew Henry, a 17th century pastor. It's a long time ago, but you've maybe heard this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think that's a really beautiful way to meditate on that idea of the rib. Okay, but again, the safari driver's getting mad with Got to keep going because here's where I, I, I want to land our last few moments together. Guys, I think the reason there's so much focus here is that God wants mankind to honor marriage. I think so much is given to this part of the story because marriage is supposed to be a hallowed, honored thing. Even to the point where parenting is going to give way to marriage right? Even the bond that you have with your child, he says, man, leaves his father and mother and, and bonds with his wife. That's so, just as strong as the marriage is to be that all of their bonds kind of give way to this bond of marriage. So guys, I, I don't have to, it's almost like stating the obvious that the idea of marriage like this is just under attack, right? In our world, in our culture, but just know this, sometimes we start freaking out like things have never been this bad or something. Guys, marriage has been under attack since Genesis 3. <laughs> Brian's going to walk us through Genesis 3 next week. When you get to Genesis 4, there's already a dude writing a song to declare his polygamy and his murder. <laughs> so that's right out of the gates, right? This Bible has more like tales of destroying marriage than we're ever going to see on Facebook. God is not trying to pull any punches. It's been under attack historically since, since sin, right? You guys, even in the first century, maybe this is shock value. I just need you to hear how bad things have been and that things aren't maybe as bad as they have ever been. When Paul was writing his letters to the church that we read, Nero was the emperor of Rome at that point. Nero killed his first wife outright. The way he killed his second wife 
was by beating her to death while pregnant with his child, thus killing both of them. And then to replace her, took a young boy, had him castrated and made into a woman, renamed him after the wife that he had just killed, and lived in this grotesque, exploitive marriage. With, that was the leader of the known world. <laughs> Guys, things have been worse, if you can imagine, than they are now. And here's my appeal, church. Here's my appeal. We should stop being shocked by the way that marriage is being redefined and undefined and destroyed out there somewhere. Here's what I think Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to do. Get our attention on what marriage should be right here, right? I I can't even answer to what's going on like out there. But I do know this, God would have us to, to start cherishing marriage, to say awesome when it comes to marriage, to protect it and to nurture it and to watch over it and to make marriage something really beautiful and adore it, right? Make, make God's church the kind of church that has such great examples of Genesis 2 that it, it becomes like a magnet where people are like, wow, I don't know if I've seen that anywhere else. I, I, I want to know the one, where, where's that design that you guys are following? Where's that book that tells you how to do this stuff, right? Because I, I, I want to know that. So here's what I want to do, you guys, at this point, though, is I want to acknowledge the elephant in the room, and that is that, guys, there is not a soul in this room that has been untouched by just the ravages and vandalism of this basic truth of marriage. There's not a soul here. There's not a soul here who has been untouched, sometimes very directly, and if not, very close. And it has impacted every one of our lives. What we need to know is that this is what God wants, and we have done our best to mess that up, and we've got an enemy out there that was obviously watching this and has been on the attack of this since the beginning. And so we, we had all sorts of pain and problems out there. But we also know this. It's because of that pain and brokenness that Jesus Christ came to us. And guys, we're going to be celebrating communion here in just a bit. Jesus went through his life never being married and I think even that was really intentional because you know what he was declaring to us? That the real peace and the real complement, the real completion that we need is actually not horizontal at all. It's vertical. And our real problem is that things are not right this way, far more than things are not right this way. And so he came to bring peace to us with God so that that completion could ultimately be made and satisfied with him bringing us to be right with the Father. There's this really beautiful saying by St. Augustine, He says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Ultimately, it's God that's going to complete us and fulfill us, no matter how much damage, no matter how much brokenness we have. And that's why we celebrate Jesus today. Say, Jesus, thank you that you didn't leave us where we're at that came for us to complete us and restore us and heal us and oh, how we need him. So I would love for you to stand with me and uh, we're gonna go into a time of worship. 
and a time of communion. But man, I just feel like we can't lose this moment to let God reset us a bit in these beautiful truths. So will you pray with me? Lord, man, we read this this text, and man, there's not a dry eye in the Land Rover. Like, we, we wish that that kind of moment would just be true all over the place. But Lord, you see clearly what we see clearly, and we've messed it up. Sometimes, Lord, uh, we're the ones who have done the vandalism. Sometimes we're the ones who just kind of get the brunt of other people's messing it up. But either way, Lord, you've come to heal. You've come to forgive. We feel this like emptiness. And ultimately, Lord, you want to fill that emptiness. And so you come to us, Jesus, you come to us full of love, full of hope, full of forgiveness, full of the opportunity to restart So help us go there, Lord, and thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for stepping into our brokenness, taking it upon yourself, dying so that we might live and know new life. Oh, Jesus, we do not deserve such love, but oh, man, we deserve it. We we take it, we take it right now. We, We ask you to let us receive it. Not deserve it, but receive it. Jesus. Hear us as we worship you now, in Christ's name, amen.